Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Ron Fournier talking about the expectations we have for our kids and especially the expectation that they'll be normal. We want our kids to be normal, to have lots of friends, to fit in, to be popular. But at the same time, we want them to be geniuses and superstars and want them to be good at some kind of sport or extracurricular activity or really anything that can set them apart. And Ron went on a journey that really changed the way he thought about these types of parental expectations. And he wrote about it in a book called Love That Boy, What Two Presidents, Eight Road Trips, and My Son Taught Me About a Parent's Expectations. Ron spent a lot of his career as a journalist covering President Bill Clinton and George W. Bush and Barack Obama. He's the four-time winner of the prestigious White House Correspondents Association Merriman Smith Memorial Award. And he also served as a fellow at the Harvard Institute of Politics, where he co-wrote the New York Times bestseller, Applebee's America. We're going to be speaking with Ron today about a year he spent with his son after learning that his son had Asperger's. He took Tyler all around the country to visit presidential sites and even to meet with an hour for President Clinton and President Bush. And he didn't just learn a lot about his son during the process. He learned a lot about parenting. What exactly did he learn? Well, that's the topic of today's episode. Ron, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me on, Andy. Well, so you've got a really powerful book here, man. You're talking all about this kind of trip that you took with your son and kind of getting to know him better after his Asperger's diagnosis and really some cool stories in the book and really powerful journey that you take with the son, but also some really important points I think you make in here just about parents in general, especially in this country and sort of the expectations that we have for our kids and and what is all wrapped up in that. Can you talk a little about what kind of inspired you to write this book or where all of this came from and what the process was like? I sure can. First, the title, Love That Boy, comes from President George Bush, an admonition he gave me in a story that I, I start the book with, where he realized my expectations for my son weren't lined up with the realities. Very intuitive moment with the president. The book was inspired not just by Tyler, my son, but really by my wife, uh, Lori. I like to say Tyler is the star of the book, but Lori's the hero of it. Literally, as we walked out of the clinician's office with our fresh diagnosis that our 12-year-old boy was autistic with, at the time, what they called Asperger's syndrome, high-functioning autism. With tears in her beautiful blue eyes, she said, you got to step up. And what she meant by that was I had spent a lot of time fulfilling my ego and chasing my dreams and fulfilling my duties as a single breadwinner, going around the world with presidents. I was covering the presidency in the White House for the Associated Press and presidential candidates during the presidential year. So I would go around the country 
starting with Iowa and New Hampshire. And that took me away from the family a lot. And she said, you got to step up and use this job that took you away from our family to connect with our son, our youngest son, youngest boy, Tyler. And literally, as we're getting in the car, she says, specifically what you're going to do, whether you want to or not, is at least one weekend a month, you're going to take a road trip with Tyler. She called them road trips. I called them guilt trips. Um, <laughs> go to a presidential, yeah, isn't it great? Go to a presidential library or a presidential home, presidential historical site, because that's one thing we had in common. We didn't have sports in common, which is what I thought I had to have in common with my son. It's the only way I knew to parent. But we both, he loves, he still does to this day, loves history. And I was covering it, in effect, under my house. So uh, off we went to spend about a year on the road together, me learning about him. He didn't really have to learn about me. And what started out to be, what I originally wrote as a story about Bill Clinton and George Bush, because the last trips we took were visits with those two former presidents. Tyler spent an hour with both of them. Wow. And I learned something new about both of them that was very revealing. And I'd known them and written about them for decades. So I wrote this political piece. And my editor at the time threw it back to me across his desk. And he said, hey, Barry, down there in your 15th paragraph, you mentioned that Tyler, you, you have this poignant scene that I can read to you later if you want, where um, Tyler feels like he's letting you down at the White House. How did that make you feel? And I start crying in my editor's office. I said, it made me feel horrible. What kind of father makes his son feel shame like that and feel, yeah. feel guilt like that? He says, and he threw the story, threw my, my hard copy at me and said, go write that story. So with a lot of research, a lot of soul searching, and then with a lot of research, I realized that I had these expectations for my son that were shaping and misshaping my son. And son of a gun, all of us parents have different expectations for our children that they come out of love, but if we're not careful, they will hurt our relationship with our children and actually hurt our children. Now, in my case, I thought that my son had to be a jock like me and it was the only way I knew how to communicate with him. But boy, I talked to a lot of parents, talked to a lot of parents, Andy, and I heard parents saying they, you know, and talked to a lot of teenagers. And I realized that, that parents expected children to be normal, whatever normal is, not to be abnormal, like having autism when in fact, none of us are normal, right? We expect our kids to go to the right schools, to marry the right woman, to be a star at something, whether it's the flute or football, to have the right career, to go to the right college. We have all these expectations and they warp our kids. And what I realized with Tyler and what I want all parents to realize in reading this book is that while no, I did not have my idealized son. I didn't have the jock that I thought I needed to have to be a good father. The son of a gun, I had my ideal son. That instead of me spending all this time trying to make him a, a, a shallow version of me, I'd be a better man if I was more like him. And that's what I realized. And it took, it took a year writing this book and a lot of soul searching to realize that I could learn more from him than he could from me. And I needed to adjust my expectations to fit his life instead of the other way around. I think that's so common is that we see our role as parents is to teach them something and to help them figure it out when if we can flip our mindset to be learning from our kids and to be kind of almost alongside them on this journey and learning with them, that's really powerful. Right. We want to teach them to find their own best path. And whether that means that they're going to study history instead of being a jock or they're going to go to the university 
of Illinois instead of the University of Michigan, or they're going to be gay rather than straight, or that they happen to be have a disability rather than not have one, or they marry somebody of a different religion that we want them to. Yeah, That's not our job. Our job is not to carve their path. Our job is not to burden them with our expectations or to try to have them fulfill our unrequited dreams. I couldn't be a quarterback for the Detroit Lions, so Tyler's going to be. No, that's not our job. Our job is to give them the tools and the guidance and the support to find their own path and then damn well support them on whatever that path is, even if it's one that you're not familiar with. Easier said than done. talk about the dreams that we have for our kids and you say they come from many places and the first place is found within every parent what do you mean by that we are wired as human beings to procreate to have children and we are wired to be afraid of death and therefore we are wired to make our kids be our legacy to when we're gone that we have a carbon copy of us some figment of us that is left behind. So therefore, whether we realize it or not, most of us want our kids to be either what we are or what we wished we were. Yeah. And so the expectations start with our baggage that we drag into parenthood. It starts before the kids are even born. We're creating these dreams for what are what they're going to be. I make that point in the book. Yeah, I draw a picture of the typical nursery. Mm-hmm. And look at your typical nursery. It's loaded with those expectations. Yeah. First of all, it's pink or blue. Right. So my kid's going to be straight women or, or male, you know, if you got sports posters up there, you or you got ballerina posters. Yeah, you mentioned buying a little baseball mitt before your son was even more. Tiger hates sports, but boy, we nicknamed him before he was born Tiger because of Tiger Woods and the Detroit Tigers. <laughs> and we loaded his room filled with sports memorabilia. And here, here we go. So we go to age 12. I'm still trying to connect with him through sports. I. We are in the room and we are hearing his diagnosis from a great doctor, Dr. Mindy Quinn in Arlington. And she goes through all these attributes of someone on the spectrum to describe Tyler. He has a hard time making eye contact. He has an unusually deep voice. He has an unusually high IQ. He doesn't like having conversations. And then she says, and like a lot of children on the spectrum, your son has problems with mobility, with dexterity, with his fingers. And he runs stiff-legged. And what did I say? I said, doctor, Is that why he's no good at sports? I had turned his diagnosis into a scouting report. Right. He looked at me like, and my wife looked at me, only like two very smart women can. And, you know, with a side look. (laughs) Yes, Ron, that also might be why he doesn't like sports. Yeah, right. And that's, I mean, it took me 12 years to realize I had pushed all these expectations on him out of love. Totally. Not because I'm a bad dad. I think I'm a good dad. But why was I trying so hard to connect with him through sports? Okay, I'll have to try harder to connect with him through history or through animals or through Star Trek, through one of his interests, but that's my job, or at least let him pursue his interests. You mentioned a lot of the different kind of categories of expectations that we have for our kids. And one of the big ones that you talk about in the book is being normal. And I guess just so, so natural that we just want our kids to fit in, to be just, just to be 
in the middle of the pack kind of just to to feel like normal and not not to get made fun of i guess or that we fear so much that if they're weird or different that they won't fit in and they won't be accepted and they'll be kind of ostracized or made fun of and that's like a, such a core human thing i feel like that's yep. really hard to get past that's the first chapter of the book what i do is every chapter deals with one of our expectations and mm. i started with that one because it's fundamental and it's very representative yeah it's fundamental yeah. because it's easier to get along in society if you're not seen as different. And it's universal because all of us, out of love, we, we want our children to fit in, as you say. So me wanting my toddler to be normal is out of love. My, my wife saying, when my, all three of our children were born, do they have all their fingers? Yeah. It's out of love. But think of the expectation we're setting. First of all, it's impossible to be normal because there is no normal. There's no we are all thing, unique right. differently. Right. We are all snowflakes yeah, in the sense that every right. snowflake is different, right? So when you raise a child to be normal, you're raising a child to fail. What we've mm. got to do instead is to help our children embrace their uniqueness. And in Tyler's case, one of his uniqueness is the fact that he's on a spectrum. Embrace it and then help him navigate society and be proud of, of his uniqueness. And if you can, something I'm trying to do, at least on autism, I'm trying to change the world. So the world will adapt to people like Tyler instead of changing people like Tiger to fit into the world. Mm. But that took a long time. To How did you get past your kind of your desire for your kids to be normal or what did it take for you to sort of set that aside? It was this book, writing this book was therapy. I know that's a shame, yeah. but it really was. I spent a year on the road with Tyler thinking through this stuff. And then I spent three or four months writing a magazine article. And I already told you the process of that. And then another year and a half writing the book. And it was really writing the book. When I had to, to make the book work, I had to do research on each of these expectations to get the social science behind wanting, what does normal mean and what is academic pressures. How does that affect kids? What is the real meaning of happiness? That's one of the chapters. And in doing so, I just word by word, research by research, I realized, and I can't remember the moment where it clicked in, where I realized, what the hell? None of us are normal. That, that it's an impossible goal to set for a kid because there is no cookie cutter human being. I'd be better off if I helped him be proud of who he is, proud enough that he could withstand the expectations of the rest of the society for him to be normal. Well, that's also, I think is a really powerful point of the book too, because you also have a chapter about genius and you talk about your daughter and that feeling like you and your wife really didn't have a lot of pressure that you need to be a genius or go to this amazing college or get straight A's or anything like that, but that you had this moment of realizing that she was putting so much pressure on herself and that's not really coming from us. Where's that coming from? And it's the world that she's in. It's her genes. It's whatever. Yeah. But yeah, it was like, a combination of her genes. And we were raising them in DC in a very high striving school district that held a high standard for kids and expected everybody to be genius. And 99% of the kids had to go to a college and you really weren't worth the school if you didn't go to a Ivy League college. And yeah, they give an award college. to the kids who get into all of the Ivy schools. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so we really don't think that we we were pushing those expectations on that child, but we were ignorant 
and blind to the expectations that she was dealing with to the point where we got a call one day when she was in high school from the school counselor saying, you need to come to school. Your daughter's thinking of killing herself. We had no idea she was in that state, partly because we were blinded. We were focused on, on her brother and we're blinded to the expectations that she was dealing with. Why do you talk in the book about counting your children's friends? Because that's one that's another expectation that it's out of love. We want our children to fit in, to be normal, to be popular. Yeah. For all the reasons that we on first blush, we that's what we push for. So there's we are not the only parents who counted our children's friends. And one way we gauge how successful they were adopting was how many kids came to their birthday parties. Right. Yeah. Do the kids want to come hang out at our house uh, on the weekends and after school? And again, we do this because we love our kids. And you know, this isn't I'm not indicting parenthood or parents, but totally, we have to be yeah. more self-aware. That you know what, your child can be pretty happy, just like by the way, you could be as an adult with one really good friend. Yeah. A friend who does good things that are hard with you, a friend that sticks with you through thick and skin, then a friend who gives you unconditional love, a friend who makes you better, a friend who you make better. You're better off as a human being with one friend like that than a thousand what I call Facebook friends. Yeah. You know, transactional friends, friends who not just who, who are friends on social media, but friends who show up for a birthday party or who come by your Christmas party if you're, you're an adult or who are a friend right. at work. Transactional passing friends aren't the same as those really deep embedded friendships. And all of us, especially when you get to be adulthood, none of us have more than a handful of really true, deeply embedded friends. And we should help our kids identify and foster those friendships. And be that kind of friend rather than helping them collect a bunch of Facebook friends. That's the type of friends that we're really looking for when we're counting friends. We're just looking for well, how many more is better. <laughs> how many people say hi to me when I'm walking down the, the middle school hallway? Mm, or how many yeah. people pat me on the back as an adult when I walk into the Detroit Athletic Club? Um, if this has always been a problem in society, uh, social media exacerbates it. Because now you know we get that like and we get those endorphins. But it's always been a problem where we mistake that shallow friendship that, that feeds our ego and kicks off those endorphins. We mistake that with the friends that are so close, they're almost family. The friends who tell you hard truths, who you can argue with and fight with, but still love. The friends that, um, I, I, we, have very, we have one set of very, very close friends in Washington, and they like to say, friends are the family you choose. Mm. The friends are the ones you choose, that, but you treat like family. And you make a member of your family. You only need, a hand, you're only going to get a handful of those in your life. What can we do to help our kids find those friends and be that kind of friend? That's much more valuable of a parenting lesson than how do you have 25 kids show up to your birthday party? I love this chapter where you're talking about it's really not just academically that we want our kids to be stars it's like it's in all kinds of organized activities or we see our job as kind of like to find the thing that they can be good at and then to just to load up all the attention and coaching and whatever they need to excel at it 
so they can just be a star at something. <laughs> I like the way when you're describing that, your voice got manic. <laughs> we're desperate. We're desperate to have our kids be a star at something again, because we love them and we think they yeah. got to be a star to be successful. This was a good example of my editor really helping me out because uh, you know I want I wanted to write about how I wanted my kids to be successful in sports because it was how I could bond with them. Yeah. But I had to make this book universal, and she's the one who said. Don't you think we all want our kids to be stars at something? And I mm. thought of me, yeah. And I'm thinking of my friends and the people I know. Yeah, we all want our kids to be high achiever in school or to be the best flautist or to be the best pianist or to be, we want them to be best at something. Hey, we're here with Ron Fournier talking about the expectations parents have for our children and what we need to do about those. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. Monticello is Thomas Jefferson's house. And it's one of the places we visited. And like parenthood, the facade is near perfect. And it certainly is, it's the perfect, the best reflection that he could possibly put on himself. Yeah. It's a beautiful looking building. It's an engineering marvel. For example, you, you pull on a uh, part of the uh, mantle of the fireplace and it exposes a hidden channel where you can drop your empty wine bottle down and a full wine bottle comes up. All these amenities just make it beautiful on the outside. It's kind of how we present parenting on Facebook. Mm. Look at Facebook and we're all perfect parents and our kids are perfect. <laughs> now, you go another level down and you realize the channel I told you behind the mantle, it was dropped down to slaves mm. who sent up the, the wine bottle. So Monticello is a is beautiful on the facade, but it's pretty dark when you look beneath it. It's very imperfect when you look beneath it. I see that in parenthood. That parenthood on the facade can look pretty good, but if you're not careful, its foundation can be pretty weak and pretty grim. Bill Clinton, who I admire as a politician, one of the greatest communicators ever, did something very kind. He spent 45 minutes in the private residence of his library in Little Rock, talking to Tyler. And he had been well briefed. He says, Tyler, I understand you're fascinated with history, especially in Teddy Roosevelt's your favorite president. Tyler says, uh-huh. And then off Bill Clinton went for 45 minutes. It was a monologue. Now it was brilliant. I'm taking all kinds of notes about the parallels between Bill Clinton's time as president and Teddy Roosevelt's time as president and the parallels between our times at the beginning of the 20th century and just, you know, and he even talked about you know, the rise and fall of media and, and classic Bill Clinton. It was brilliant. But Tyler barely hit, said two words. Uh, By the way, he was very gracious. He gave Tyler a, um, off his bookshelf a, a book about um, animals that he signed. And, and he gave Tyler this, this first edition copy of Teddy Roosevelt's letters to his children. <sighs> Could not have been more gracious. So I don't mean this at all to be critical. It was a wonderful thing he did. On the way out, I said... Tyler, what do you think? And Tyler says he likes to talk about himself and his stuff. And I had the presence of mind to say, like you, huh? And he says, yeah, like me. So my takeaway here was, look, at Tyler's, he's not good at reading social clues, mm. right? Well, here's the greatest communicator of our lifetime, not picking up on the fact that Tyler wanted to talk, yeah. that Tyler was kind of bored, that he was talking too much. If Bill Clinton can miss social cues, you know what, if this guy can't be, isn't always perfect in the conversation, why am I so embarrassed when Tyler doesn't handle himself well?
that's the one lesson there at the end and embrace your inner aspie if, if we um, make different cool. The best gift we can give our children is to help them be confident and to celebrate what makes them different. Yeah. And whether that's a disability or a hobby or the way they look or the way they think or whatever makes your child different, whatever makes you different as a person is really what makes you special. And so, for, you know, for Tyler, he, he'll, he now embraces the fact that he's autistic and he's proud of the fact that he's autistic because it makes him some things that aren't normal, but also we don't have enough of in this world. He's extremely empathetic. Does he show it the way a neurotypical person does? No, but he's the most empathetic person I know. He's extremely smart. He's funny. What makes him different is what makes him special. And if you can raise your kids to realize that being different is cool and being normal is unrealistic, what a great gift that would be to give your kids. And it starts with you celebrating it with them from the moment they're even before they're born. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Give them the space to be different. Give them the the confidence to be different, give them the power to be different, give them the support to be different. Because at the end of the day, we're all freaking different. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.